You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. あんたは一生人ですよ。あんたの話を誰だって嘘だと言えないですよ。寺島さん、お願いします。お願いしますよ。Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Or am I really Tokyo Rose? Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Stashew. 
I ate a guy's body and now I'm depressed and I hate the war. There you go. On this episode, we are looking at Kenji Fukasaku's Under the Flag of the Rising Sun. Released in 1972, it's the story of Sake Togashi, a war widow who has been trying for years to get the benefits promised to her by the 1952 Military Survivor Benefits Law. However, her husband has been labeled as a traitor, and the details of his death aren't clear. She spends the film investigating the death of her husband via stories told by a handful of his surviving fellow soldiers. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the movie. We will still be here. So, Rob, you brought this movie to the fore. I'm very curious, when was the first time you saw it, and what did you think? Well, I have to uh, give that a big uh, thank you to our guest this week, which is Linda Hoagland, who is the uh, subtitler of the film and also uh, a filmmaker in her own right. She was on, hard to believe, I, I sent her an email to do the interview with us, Mike, and um, I said, you know, you're on with us a couple of years ago. We did um, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which is the, the great Yakuza series that uh, Fukuzaka did, and we also did Battle Royal, which a lot of people probably know, a little more modern film. And uh, I said, you know, if you were on with us a few years ago and I looked at the dates of those shows and it was nine years ago. So, wow. but when she was on with us then back in uh, 2012, she said, you know, if you guys like these films, you really need to see Under the Flag of the Rising Sun as the grandson of a uh, American army veteran who fought and was wounded in the Pacific. I have always been interested in films related to the Pacific because the feeling that I have is that we seem to, at least in the English speaking world, do really well on making films about the European theater, but it seems that the Japanese theater gets overlooked. And I think there's multiple reasons why that is, but I had already seen battle Royal. Obviously I'd already seen battles without honor and humanity. I had an idea of his, his visual sense, and, and, and especially in this era in the early 70s when he was really experimenting and doing amazing work. And I did not expect this to be as amazing as it is. I mean, I think it is one of the great uh, anti-war films and really asks a lot of questions about uh, what was the point from Fukuzaku's point of view uh, when it comes to um, to that war. And we'll talk a little bit more about him. And Linda obviously has massive insight in, into the man having worked with him. It's one of the best anti-war films, and uh, sadly, it's one of probably uh, the, the least known. And Chris, was this a first-time watch for you? I feel like at this point, Mike, whenever I come on your podcast, that answer is a given. That is why I'm here, because I always want to broaden my cinematic horizons with stuff like this. Stuff like this being a well, like you pretty much said, Rob, a well-made film about how shitty war is, and... Look, as someone who is, you know, a millennial growing up in an era when I grew up, I can't help but agree that fucking war is terrible. I'm just going to say it out right at the top. I, my opinion on war is not that's a, should not be a surprise. You're not pro-war, Chris? Oh, no. I'm sorry, guys. I forgot to tell you. I'm not at all. Frankly, um, whenever I get into deep discussions politically with people, mostly it goes to it would be nice if we stopped spending all of our money on our defense. And that's kind of where conversation goes from there. So when I sat down to watch this, I honestly didn't even know what to expect. I didn't read anything. I didn't read the synopsis or anything. I went into it cold. Uh, this is my first time watching this film and any of this director's films. And 
I don't think I could say it any better than Rob did. This is a fantastic film that has a lot of style that I wasn't expecting. And ultimately, once the film ends, it ends in such a way that it sums up the entire idea of the film in the last scene. And very few films are able to do that as well as this one can. And so, so, so many films have tried. And it's uh, it's it's an impressive, like Rob said, it's an impressive anti-war film. And it's a well-told story in the vein of kind of Rashomon, which, again, was not expecting. What about you, Mike? I had never seen this film before. Obviously, I'd seen Battles Without Honors and Humanity and Battle Royale when we watched those for the show. I think I've seen a couple other Fukusakus over the time. But last year, I I wrote a uh, visual essay for Arrow for Graveyards of Honor. And I watched that several times and Street Mobster and a few other Yakuza films that Fukusaku put out, not including the Battles Without Honor and Humanity. And so I was a little bit more prepared when it came to watching it this time, and I could really see a lot of the things that he'd like to do during this period. So like the idea of still frames, having that as your opening credits, but then he goes back to that quite a few times, handheld shots, especially like crazy handheld shots where the camera is almost like laying on its side, where it's like the, the, the image is, is tilted completely. I was a little bit more prepared when it came to how this film would look, but not the subject matter of the film. This is the first film of his I've seen that has a female protagonist, and I had no idea what it was going to be about coming in. And I also wasn't expecting just how, even though I said that I've seen his other films and I understand like a little bit of his bag of tricks, I didn't expect this to be so visually arresting. I was just floored watching this film and seeing how he put it together. And this is one of those that I have watched a few times now, just over the last few days, just trying to piece all of the parts together to see when he uses desaturated scenes, uh, desaturated color versus full color, when he uses still images, when he has text on screen, just all of these pieces that he has all mixing together. And then you're talking about that Rashomon structure what an incredible way to tell this story. How do you make a war film, and especially World War II, without a massive budget? You do it with stills. Like, he could have gotten documentary footage, but I'm glad that he didn't use documentary footage. I think that doing kind of a, what, what can only be described as kind of a proto-Ken Burns effect, as we now know, you know, by having that still and kind of gliding over it and using audio and using on-screen text to talk about, like, how many soldiers died and, you know, and, and where these things were happening. I think it's done masterfully, and it brings this kind of documentary feel to it in a way that it heightens the reality of, of, of what it is that she's trying to figure out at the same time. And uh, because I don't necessarily think this concept was kind of codified by this time, I mean, 1971, 72, uh, when he was making this and this was coming out, is that remember when we did um, the Argento films? And we talked about what was one of the key pieces of what made the Argento films or Giallo films in Italy in general, one of the kind of thematic drivers of the, of the character. And that is, is that the officials either are unwilling to do their job or they're fucking inept. And therefore it's a civilian. It's somebody who's like, I'm, well, I'm going to investigate this then because the cops aren't going to do it. And that's basically kind of what we have. I mean, if you think about it, where the war widow is kind of that, 
detective who's trying to figure out piecing together this history of, you know, what what happened on that island on the last day of the war that supposedly my husband was a deserter or he was court-martialed and executed. Like, what the fuck happened? Or he ate someone or he got killed stealing a potato or he charged nobly into battle. It's just fascinating to me the way he's able to structure it and how there's also this feeling among the characters that even though some of his men came back, they feel like the walking dead. They feel like my life ended back there and on that island. Oh, yeah. Nobody's in a really good place once they come back. First guy that she talks to is probably living the lowest of the low, but nobody is doing well. None of these guys are doing well. No, one of them's blind from drinking homemade moonshine bomb, as it's called in the film. And then one of them's a teacher. He seems the most well-adjusted. He seems really pissed off, though. Well, that well, that too. But he seems the most well-adjusted. He's not living in a trash pile, and he's not blind. So of the gentlemen, he's the most well-adapted. But to your point, that's really not saying much. I love his story, this whole thing of him being in the path of airplanes and to hear Linda's commentary and her talking about how these are airplanes that are being refueled to go over to Vietnam. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You talked a little bit about how we treat the European theater of war, but there is such a complicated history when it comes to Japan and how we treated Japan and the laws that Japan enacted upon themselves. I mean, just this movie really started to unravel some of that stuff for me, which was really remarkable just how much is packed in here. And just like little throwaway lines like, oh, yeah, we had a war criminal as a uh, as the head of our par- parliament. And I was like, well, what is that? Well, who is this war criminal? And then luckily Linda talked about it. I was able to look it up some more and just like really start to see what a horrible world uh, that America helped create for Japan after the war. I mean, we weren't like these great benefactors or anything. We came over and we're just like, okay, you're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And uh, you have no choice in the matter. Thanks. Yeah, it's... um. I think, Mike, to your point, when we talk about the European theater versus the Asian theater, I think it's easier for American society and culture to get a wrangle on the European theater because it's we're one step sideways from European culture, right? We literally came to this country from Europe. But I mean, as I know, I don't know if you've been to Asia before, Rob, but I know Mike has and I have as well. And it is a stark contrast in cultures. You know, I had the ability and the, you know, kind of the, benefit to go to Tokyo on our wedding uh, honeymoon. And the culture is very different, but that's not a bad thing. And the problem with a lot of, like you mentioned, Mike, films that try to tackle the Asian or the Pacific, you know, the Pacific conflict, it's they always try to do and we'll talk about it later. We're not talking about it now in a, in a film that we will talk about. They do it in that movie for dramatic effect. And I was reading about that scene in that film and it drove the folks who watched it in Japan nuts as it drove me nuts, as I'm sure it probably drove y'all nuts, given how good this movie is and how much this movie doesn't do that because it's made by a Japanese director, not an American director attempting to approach the source material. And I think that's, you know, it's as kind of weird as that sounds. It is a thing that we as Americans can't understand that part of it. We inherently will never understand that. We will never understand losing entire families worth of people. 
to nuclear weapons. We'll never understand three million people dying. I mean, I can't even process that. I can't. And I have a hard time processing what we've been dealing with last year. And I can't process three million people. And it's I think that's there is a there is a protective nature that all a lot of us have grown up under that we haven't had to think about these kind of these kinds of things for a very long time. And when we're confronted with it, it's very ugly to look at, but it, it needs to be looked at. And I think a lot more people really need to watch films like this because it does kind of pull back the hood and just says, look, at, look it in the eyes. Don't look away. This is, you guys did this. Don't look away. One of the things that we talked about with Fukuzaku's films, both the, um, the Yakuza films, especially the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series, because it may be the title card of every single film in there. It's definitely in the first one is that you get a shot of the atomic explosion of Hiroshima and the title card of the film. And in this film, obviously, you can't not talk about the war and not talk about that as well. Part of the reason why we have a hard time, and, and, and this is kind of what I posit, and I don't know what you think uh, about sort of creating good film, and, and we'll talk more about it uh, past the jump with the other ones we're going to discuss, is that the, the thing that's always kind of bothered me is that I think that for us, we have, and I'm talking about Americans and sort of English-speaking world or European world, is that we have this sense of kind of moral clarity when it comes to um, dealing with Nazis. You had some fine people, but you also had troublemakers. We understand it better. We, we have a, a more direct connection to that, as, as you were saying, Chris. And because of that, I think we end up with more film in that vein. The, the problem is that I think you either have to, A, explain too much when it comes to the Pacific Theater for audiences. You have to talk about possibly nuclear weapons, which is still a problem. At the Truman Library, they have a book and they ask everyone who goes through the library to write what they thought about dropping the nuclear weapon. I mean, that's how, like you said, Rob, that's how pervasive this conversation still is. But then the third piece of it is, is a racial aspect. And what I mean by that is, is that, yeah, you know, they called the, the Germans, the Huns or the Krauts or whatever, but there really was an othering of, of the Japanese, both in terms of culture and in that. And there was a great book that I remember reading uh, that I would recommend uh, if, if anyone wants to kind of talk and, and get into this subject, it was called uh, An Intimate History of Killing is the name of the book. And it looked at, um, and I remember at least two wars, could have been three, but it looked at the Pacific Theater and it looked at Vietnam and it looked at how the military propagandized the soldiers when they went off to war. You see part of that in some American films that are done about the Pacific Theater in which the Japanese are always, oh, well, they're just going to kill themselves for the emperor. They're all kamikaze pilots. If, if you get captured by them, look at your head off with a sword. They're subhuman, that kind of idea. Tutored by friendly America, the perfidious, tricky nation used the arts of civilization mainly to build its murderous war machine. Getting ready for the day it could strike for world power. A reptile, warmed and nurtured on the bosom of the Western world. Scheming, fawning, preparing for its merciless day of destiny. That's such a piece of it. And I also remember that there's uh, another piece of the puzzle in um, The Fog of War. Now, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, the, the McNamara documentary. And in there, I specifically remember a line that he had where he talks about talking to LeMay because he was part of the group that actually, while the atomic explosions were historic and, and awful and, and everything like that, more people actually died from incendiaries. 
and they burned just massive portions of Japan, just cities to the ground because it was pretty much wooden infrastructure because these old, these old cities. And um, he talks about in there kind of him and LeMay talking about bringing the planes down, loading them up with incendiaries, how they were going to do this kind of destruction. And at one point even says, you know, if we would have lost, we would have been tried as war criminals for what we did. And he was very clear about that. He understood just how much destruction they brought upon civilian population that um, even he was kind of unnerved by it, you know, as an old man looking back in, in that Errol Morris documentary. So I think there's a lot of stuff back there that either we're unwilling to deal with or we just don't even know how to begin to have that kind of conversation. Yeah, they have a photo in this film of here's Tokyo after all the firebombing. I mean, we talk about Dresden. Yeah, okay, great. But here's fucking Tokyo just laid to waste completely. Some of these photos in this movie are just really disturbing, Um, especially when they start talking about all of the people that were hiding in the mountains and just how many people starved. And that became such a major portion of this film, which I wasn't really expecting. I was expecting this idea because the first person that she goes to talk to after she sent out this quest, you know, after she becomes the investigator, the first person she talks to, you know, it's very much a, our sergeant was kind of crazy and your husband was a, a brave warrior and he's the one that led the troops in the battle. And then as she goes through and starts hearing more of the story and more contradictory things, yeah, eventually you start getting stuff like, we were starving, and then how do we deal with this? We get this whole thing of the one guy who finds a mouse and is chewing on this mouse, and it's just like, again, this amazing, the way that he shoots this with this mouse and all this crazy jump cuts and all this stuff just incredible but yeah just to hear them talk about the starvation and then to see all these photos of people who have starved to death because they had no food and they were hiding from the war basically it was just horrific and just the stylistic choices in here i mean i think that you know it's hard for me to put myself into a position as someone who would watch this film and not have a background and say you know um the the work that Godard was doing in the early 60s you know, just to begin with, you know, in terms of jump cuts and, and, and being willing to fracture narrative and put, you know, title cards on the screen and all kinds of things like that. So, I mean, I already had a place to kind of begin when it comes to this kind of structure and visuals. Um, the, the other thing is, is that I, I think going forward in, into Hollywood film, you, you see a little bit more of it. Like the thing that I was always thinking about, about this back and forth between the black and white and color and was, I think the first film I ever saw that did that, uh, in the theater when I was younger was American History X kind of does that where I think the whole film was shot in color and then they picked sections that were in black and white. But one of the things that I find really fascinating about, uh, Fukuzaku's use of, of that black and white and color is that he obviously denotes color for the, the real time, the current time of the story, and then the black and white for the past, the, the recounting of these stories by the various soldiers. But when the emotions get really hot, when the violence gets really hot, the color comes in. So, for example, like when the uh, one commanding officer gets his arm cut off with a sword or when they try to execute that American uh, airman who crash lands, that's when the color comes in. It's almost like I can't let you sit 
in black and white with this and be comfortable. I need you to feel this violence. And, and that's the thing that I really like about the way Fukuzaku handles violence throughout his, all his films is that violence is not cartoony. The violence is not fun. He wants you to sit in it and he wants you to feel it and he wants you to really take it in and to really wrestle with the, the real pain and anguish that comes with it. And both, on both ends, the, the, the anguish that comes with metering it out, but, but really also, you know, the person who's getting it done to them. And even if you may not like that character, you, he's like, no, this is still a person and, and you deserve to feel that pain of this. You're not getting off easy. This isn't, yeah, he, he couldn't do a scene, for example, like, um, I'm, I'm thinking of like cartoony violence in films. And the first thing that comes into my head is like that scene in Pulp Fiction where John Travolta turns around with the gun to Marvin and he blows his head off. And it's like, Oh, he blew his head off. Isn't that a laugh? Funniest scene ever. What a hilarious scene for the whole cinematic world to enjoy. When you use violence and how you portray it like they do in this film, it gives it a purpose. It makes you as the viewer feel something. And I mean, I, this is a, you know, it's a kind of an issue of, I think, cinema in general. And we talked about it on the culture cast last month about how violence is perfectly fine, but no sex. When you have something like this, I mean, there's not a lot of violence in this movie. But the violence is feels so real that you don't forget about seeing it. Because the two scenes that jump out to me from this film are so fucking brutal that, boy, you just, you have to wonder how our film system and the way that the American audience watches things is so different. Because I'm not sure a lot of people, if they watch this, which I mean, obviously, again, it's a subtitled film, so good luck. They would watch this movie and probably wouldn't even be phased by it. Because we have been so fucking desensitized. We don't really see, especially in war, we haven't been invaded. We haven't been bombed. My grandparents survived through the Blitz in Scotland and were bombed by Nazis. When you live through a scenario like that, you understand the impact of those in a much more intimate way than us where everything's at a distance. And it's like most people don't even know that they're still fighting going on in Afghanistan or wherever the soldiers are currently. There's really this disconnect between military and violence and, and that in the American society. And I think that allows us to be much more cavalier when it comes to television and film and, and how we handle violence. Yeah, I mean, I remember trying to get my grandfather to watch Enemy at the Gates, and he refused because, similar to your family, Rob, my grandfather, they were Ukrainians. And I know some people don't know this. My grandfather walked behind Nazi tanks to get away from the Russians. And then they came to the United States. You know, most people don't know sh shit about the fact that the Ukrainians are hated by the Russians so much that the Russians literally starved them. But again, like you said, Rob, like, look, we're all living our cushy lives here. None of us are in, a th in threats of anything from anywhere else other than probably people in our own country. Not probably, totally from it within our own country. There's a lot of stuff that just like, it doesn't even feel like a reality that we could inhabit. And I hope we never do. Again, it is, we are so far removed from all of this that it does just kind of almost, even like a Ken Burns documentary, you're not watching, a lot of people aren't watching it to learn about the war. They're just watching it to be entertained. And that again, cuts to this idea of like the seriousness and how pervasive and how much this disrupted everyone's lives you can't understand that if your response is, this is entertaining. You have to internalize the message that you're getting from something like this, at least. 
though at the end of the day, it's it's a very entertaining film, the way that he put it together, the way that he teases out things, that he'll say one thing in one scene, and then he'll kind of contradict it a little bit, and then the way that she pieces together this mystery, and the way that she is this investigator, and it's like, oh, yeah, he the, the guy, that the blind guy from four scenes ago, he was the guy that actually pulled the trigger on your husband. It's like, Oh, okay. And then finding that out, going to investigate, finding something, finding the, um, the one guy who she originally wasn't set out to talk to was the, uh, the captain. And then she ends up talking to him and he gives her a different story, you know, from his point of view and then manages to say, Oh yeah, that very first guy that you talked to, he was the one who told us that your husband uh, murdered an officer and it's like oh okay and then having to go back and backtrack and you're like how much of what this guy is saying is true how much of what anybody is saying is true she is as in the dark as we are and we're hearing the exact same things that she is so we're also in that investigator seat and we're also questioning what is real what is not real and we probably, the three of us, have different stories at the end to yeah. say, well, I think it was this and it was this. You know, it's like I thought it was uh, Professor Plum with the uh, knife in the drawing room. But I like that he opens this stuff open f- for interpretation because none of this stuff is set in stone. And, and we just have no idea what really happened. And I love the guy who's living in the slum. And I'll tell you a difference here that I think is a cultural difference between how he handles that character versus how that character would have been handled in an American film. And what it is, is that uh, for those who haven't seen it, or maybe if you have just to refresh memory, the characters living in the slum, he's, you know, one of the privates who was part of that whole group. And in the beginning, he tells her this story, but then it becomes known that he lied to her and she comes back and goes, look, please, like I found out what you told me was wrong. And I think in an American film, she would come back and just bitch him out. It would just be like, "You fuck you, and I'll never trust you again, and just we're done, and all of this. And she still is like, no, you you understand. You know something. Please, just tell me. And there's this moment of redemption, which leads through to the end of the film a little bit for that character who is so marginalized. And one of the things that I didn't realize until I listened to the audio commentary again was that where he's living is this kind of slum with pigs and all of this stuff. And he's talking about sort of how the um, place where he's living is going to be redeveloped as Tokyo is redeveloping in this period uh, after the war. Linda said on audio commentary that these slums were in certain cities throughout Japan. And what they were is they were considered Korean slums. And they were Korean people who were taken from Korea forcibly by the military, by the Japanese military, brought to Japan to work in the war effort, to munitions factories, build stuff. And then after the war was over, they were treated as second class citizens. They couldn't vote, they couldn't own property, they had nothing. So they ended up living in these you know, squalor ghettos, basically, in, in, in these cities that were bombed out. That's partly what that represents. Not that that character is Korean, but it's like the only place that, that he could live after the war. And like I said, just that whole thing with him and then the end, like, I don't know if you want to talk about, about that ending summation, Chris, but I actually wrote it down and I thought it was right on the head in terms of uh, kind of stating the whole point of at the end, it's, it's the guy living in the slum and the, and the war widow 
they're talking amongst themselves and just kind of like, well, what do, kind of what do we come to understand about this whole thing? And the line is, you know, the government didn't ask us if it was okay to start the war, and now we're stuck paying for it. What more can you say? I think anyone who is uh, pro-war or would consider themselves a defense hawk or would consider themselves a pacifist, I think, can agree with that, that at times the, the government executes these things and it really doesn't care what you want. That statement is so fucking universal. It could have come out of any one of our mouths in a conversation with someone today, tomorrow, five years ago, five years from now. That's how universal the entire message of this movie is. And it's not just universal to the Japanese culture. It is literally universal. For the most part, if you live in a country on this planet, you have lived in a country that has gone to war and has expected its citizenry to be involved. I love the montage, speaking of that character, when he talks about how he came back after the war and how Tokyo started to change so quickly. That montage of like the buildings and the cars. And then there's the mannequins and they keep showing these mannequins. And I noticed that the mannequins were all white skinned with blonde wigs on. And I'm just like, Oh, okay. So it's like the Americanization of Japan is what's going on. And then to even see the teacher character that we were talking about, when he goes out and his students are outside playing, they're playing tennis. Tennis wasn't really a thing until post-war. And it's like, again, this kind of Americanization of Japan. And it's just, it's got to be scary for them as well to look around and be like, I'm losing my own culture. And I did notice that the guy who's living in the slum He's the only one there. It's like he's saying, I think at one point he says like, yeah, this is even too bad for like the Korean people to live in. And it's like, wow, he's like the lower depths. He is that low of the low that no one wants to live in this horrible place that he's at. And it's just his own feeling too, psychologically, that he no longer has anything to offer. That that's the thing that you find with all of these, except for the the captain, the one who went on to become like a businessman and uh, and all of that. In that, you know, he's he's quote unquote adjusted, but he's also bought into the idea that everything they did was was fine, and that he obviously knows what happened, but he's not going to tell her. And how he keeps saying, "I have no power. I have no power." He just, I think he says that like at least twice. By the way. Which to me sounds like the old, oh, I was just following orders. Exactly. Like if, was, if this was a film where that's a, a Nazi war <laughs> widow trying to figure it out, it'd be like, oh, I was just following orders. The people who don't follow orders don't get to tell the story at the end. There was a documentary that came out either last year or the year before on Netflix. It was about the guy in Cleveland who was, I guess, slave labor at a Holocaust camp. And then he was one of the people that was, you know, I either help us or we'll kill you. So he helped and then obviously came to the States afterwards, you know, new name, yada, yada, yada. And then they found out he was a former Holocaust camp participant. And that's the same question that they asked. And it's the same thing. It's like, if you're just following orders, where do you stand then? I mean, a terrible example, but another similar thing it's like in the Harry Potter films where they ask about the Cruciatus curse, which is the mind control curse. And it's always that same. It's that same question. A lot of things ask it. It's about if you know that the decision you make is going to get you punished, possibly mortal punishment. Can you dissociate yourself enough from the decision you're making to still retain some of your humanity? Or do you in cow time to the needs, demands of the government, do you lose who you are? And 
I think your your answer is going to vary given uh, given your approach to the scenario and whether or not you've ever been in that scenario. But it's an interesting question, and it's one that I mean, this film is very much in the wheelhouse of no, <laughs> clearly no. I have to call out how much I absolutely love the transition from the teacher's story to Captain Senda's story. It's in the desaturated footage of the teacher seeing Senda and his granddaughter. And he passes by and he looks at him and Senda looks at uh, the teacher and the teacher's voiceover is like, he didn't even recognize me. He didn't know who I was. And he is standing on one side and then Senda turns the footage turns back to color and there's the widow standing there it's like we have taken history in this timeline and just compressed it so much and the, with the switch to color it's like now we're present day now here's the widow and she immediately starts asking him questions i just really like how economic fukusaku is with that shot choice and just how well put together that is i mean this film is just so well put together i can't stop saying that and it moves quick i mean oh god yes it's way less than two hours i think it's an hour and a half i mean it was a lot and he does not ease up for minutes it's a roller coaster and that's what he does i mean that's that's why i've come to love his work as i've gotten into it is that buckle up kids it takes multiple viewings to, before i can even begin to put things together to see things like i think i saw a shot of the area where they were trying to kill the american soldier that was in maybe say like the second flashback, but then you really get to see it during like the third or fourth flashback. And it's like, Oh, okay. So it's like, again, this kind of like we were saying Rashman type thing where it's like, here's a little something that you're going to see later. So this is partially true, or at least you can believe a little bit of this thing. And then you'll see the much more expanded version later on. So I just, I really appreciated that he was able to, just put these things in, in pepper little um, clues throughout this so that we could try to piece this mystery together. This style and this format and this structure, if you don't nail it, good luck. Your film is going to be a f- complete failure. And that's the most impressive thing about this. Like you mentioned, Rob, it's like, I am beyond impressed the format and the structure of this film and the fact that it's an hour and a half. And the thing that makes me sad right now is... It is out of print as a DVD. I haven't heard any re-release plans. I'm hoping that, Mike, as you said, Arrow's done um, Battles Without Honor and Humanity and things like that. that Maybe they'll pick it up. It's even hard to get in Japan. This is a movie that's kind of, it escaped at some point. (laughs) uh, Good luck finding it, I guess. But hopefully we can get a nice Blu-ray or something like that, because I think this definitely deserves it. I mean, visually, it's amazing. And it's wild to say that a Toho film is hard to find. Fucking Toho film was distributed by Toho in the United States. Why is it so hard to find? I'm curious about the whole thing of it being submitted for an Oscar, but then the Academy was just like, yeah, no, not this one. How dare they be anti-war? I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more. I mean, I do understand that because of the way he handles the war and kind of questions the emperor that that didn't go over too well with certain people. Well, I had no idea until listening to Linda's commentary that it was... I don't know if it was illegal or just forbidden to talk about the American occupation for like seven years. So the first seven years of occupation, you could not 
mention it in films, whereas opposed to by this point, like Fukusaku, you know, you're talking about battles of, with honor and humanity. I mean, I was talking about Graveyard of Honor. The American military presence is so prevalent in those films, especially when it comes to how they helped enable the underworld. That was the thing. It's like, oh, okay, well, we know crime is going to go on. So either let's get a little taste and let's put the right people in power so that we can continue to get a little taste. So it was basically like the American military backing the Yakuza in a lot of cases. And there were Yakuza that were running for and successfully becoming politicians. You know, they made the mention in here about a war criminal being their prime minister. And it's like, yeah, yeah. After a while, like once we got into Korea, the American military was more than happy to take people who were basically war criminals and say, hey, you know how to make ammunition to fight against us. Help us make ammunition to fight against the Koreans, the North Koreans. And yeah, we started putting war criminals in places of power. Way to go, America. And then you have Operation Paperclip, which is the way that the United States uh, made it to the moon because we just, you know, hired a bunch of Nazi scientists who totally weren't making stuff for, you know, the killing of Americans to now send us to the moon. But hey, like you said, under the guise of, hey, the technology will benefit us. Let's bring all the war criminals, give them amnesty secretly, and then put them in the United States under assumed names, and then allow them to continue their research like Werner von Braun. I mean, this is not a fucking secret that that guy was a Nazi. It's like an open secret that he was a Nazi. And, you know. We're in trouble, Mike. Why is that? Because if you go back and you remember the first time I was on the show, someone talked about how when I was on and we were talking about blood-sucking freaks, they didn't want it to end up being a, some sort of socialist lecture by some sort of professor. I think we're getting into that territory. Oh, well, I was told long ago that this show is ruined by politics. Yeah, Mike has ruined his show uh, via politics. You see those people that complain all the time. I love it. <laughs> all the time. And then I get it, too. If I say one thing, it's like the world comes crashing down. It's almost like you're not allowed to have an opinion. And, and per Scarlett Johansson, we're not. There are definitely a lot of things that we're not picking up on. I was so glad that Linda is not only interpreting the subtitles, but also interpreting a lot of the symbolism. And I noticed the first time I watched it, the way that uh, we pause when we're in the auditorium, that the teacher's auditorium, and there's the band and there's the rising sun flag. And he looks at it very askance. And then later on in the film, when you hear this electric guitar, I was not able to pick it out. But luckily, Linda was there in the commentary saying that's the Japanese national anthem being played very much like Jimi Hendrix played the our national anthem. And it's like, oh, OK, I never would have known that. But that plays over that entire last bit where the widow is questioning things. and. Before we get that horrific shot of the skulls and the bones and the fire at the very end with the numbers of how many people died, to have that as like our soundtrack at that point was very powerful. More of a fan of heavy handed symbolism, like ending a film with the sun setting. That's more what I'm a fan of. I don't like subtlety in my movies. I would like for you to crack me over the head with the mallet of subtlety because I just don't I just don't like it. I just don't like subtlety. You must like the cinema of Robert Redford quite a bit. Yeah, I really do. Anytime you have to tell me what I should be understanding I'm looking at, that's all I care about. I want to tell you how to feel, Chris. 
You're looking at a red door. Yeah, I know. Thanks. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play an interview that Rob did with translator and filmmaker Linda Hoagland. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books. He writes reviews. He's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from the Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know Cinema Detours. Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there. And you basically want to pick it up. And I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him. You can thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So there's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. I want to... Thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, it's been a couple of years, but I think that your story and perspective is really fascinating because we talked a little bit before in the previous interview we did. You were, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the daughter of missionaries and you were raised in Japan? I uh, was born in Kyoto and attended Japanese public schools through eighth grade and then lived in Japan until I moved to the United States for university when I was 17. So I'm, my Japanese is bone deep and my sense of aesthetic is also bone deep Japanese. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about that, because uh, obviously we're talking about under the flag of the rising sun, is how the war was discussed when you were going to school, when you were growing up there in that period. It was taught in schools as the narrative of defeat as opposed to any kind of acknowledging any kind of aggression in Pearl Harbor or Nanjing or or let alone anywhere in Asia during the war. And pretty much, you know, a narrative of victimization. And uh, of course, this contrasted sharply with the narrative of victory that I was exposed to when I moved to the United States. And it was very, very difficult for me to reconcile these two narratives about the same war. And so I actually went on to make a trilogy of my own films about World War II that included explorations of kamikaze pilots and Hiroshima 
and then the 1960 democratic uprising in Japan against the continued presence of U.S. military bases in the post-war as a way to try to make sense of this huge gap in the narrative. You're probably one of the few people that I know of who can understand sort of both sides of this narrative, given your background. Right. But I would say, having made those films, and, and now I'm really done, I'm, I'm, I've moved on to other themes in my films, but I would say ultimately, as we look on to globe decimated by climate change, you know, I, I would say everybody lost. That's my philosophical take on it now. I also think that victory doesn't actually teach you very much. So it, I know it sounds ironic, but I'm actually grateful that I grew up in a country that lost a war because it, had, it was forced, not everybody, you know, there's still many, many in, unresolved issues, but many great filmmakers and writers and artists really grappled with the consequences of that loss. And of course, they had to go back to the beginning and the aggression, Japanese aggression, and starting that war and in the Pacific. And so I learned a great deal from their work. Uh, and I've subtitled many of those films. And I've also translated some of those artists' writings. And so it's been a, a real treasure trove of learning for me. You talked about uh, those filmmakers and artists during that period, and obviously one that I wanted to talk to you about today, and we've talked a, a bit about in the past, is uh, Fukuzaku and his time during the war. Could you kind of refresh people as to, you know, those who might not know what he went through? And specifically, I'm sort of thinking of the uh, the shelling, that uh, the story of the shelling that he undertook as a teenager. I can't remember if you knew, or if I ever told you, that actually I'm the individual that's responsible for Under the Flag of the Rising Sun being available in English. Did you know that? I can't remember, Robert. I didn't know that. I remember that we talked about um, his uh, Yakuza films, um, mm -hmm. and we also talked about Battle Royal, and those were the ones mm -hmm. that I was familiar with. And you had mentioned in the interview that you're like, you know what you should really see is you should see under the flag of the rising sun and and i went and was able to track down a dvd copy of it i think it's out of print now sadly um unless somebody's gotten around to re reissuing it in the u.s it completely like blew my head wide open because one of the things that that i always talk about uh when we talk about war film especially world war ii era war film we get a lot of movies uh, in the European theater, and it seems like Hollywood knows how to handle that because, you know, there's the Holocaust and there's Nazis and there's all of that. But when we get into the question of the Pacific, which is where my grandfather fought and was wounded, it seems like they either don't know how to handle it, or they don't at all bother to, to get in there, or there's kind of a mash. It's like they don't quite know. You end up with something like... You know, which which I like uh, the the Terrence Malick film, The Thin Red Line. I think. Well, of that, course, but that yeah. but that is an epic <laughs> philosophical meditation on the 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 travesty of war. I think. I mean, that's a masterpiece, right? And what's amazing about Thin Red Line is that if you watch it all the way through to the end, he deliberately integrates all of the credits of the Japanese and the American actors, which I thought was you know his homage to. Show the respect that he showed for the Japanese actors who played the soldiers, 
However, you know, whatever atrocities they committed. And so anyway, I just wanted to pay homage to, to that masterpiece. The other film, and this is in recent memory, is Letters from Iwo Jima, which I figure, you know, I thought that was well done. You know, I've got a few issues with it, but it was one, that was another one of those kind of films for me where we get to see it from the Japanese angle. And I just don't feel that at times in America or in, you know, English language film, uh, in that way, we, we really understand it in that way. We don't really talk about that theater, uh, as much as we do Europe. The rage about Pearl Harbor is so, I think it's kind of blinding to many Americans, right? They cannot imagine human beings engaging in that kind of attack against the United States. And so maybe that, that is so blinding culturally that they can't really see straight. But what happened with Under the Flag of the Rising Sun is that around, I think it was about 1998 or so, the Rotterdam Film Festival had the first ever Fukasaku retrospective. And there were 15 films selected. And I wound up subtitling, there were at least five or maybe eight films of his that had never been subtitled. So I subtitled all those films, and then I watched all of them all of the 15 films at the Rotterdam Film Festival, and one of them was Under the Flag of the Rising Sun. And like you, when I saw it in the theater, I was completely blown away. But I was also equally blown away by the horrifyingly bad subtitles. Clearly, the subtitler didn't have a you know native command of English, but also was abhorred by the Fukasaku's critical treatment of the emperor. And so the subtitles really didn't reflect it. <laughs> what was going on in the movie. And so the combination drove me to shop the film around to, I think at the time it was called Home Vision. And they released the only video of the film because the film has never been released on video in Japan either. It seems like it's available on Amazon Japan, but it's not available on, um, I'm sorry, on Amazon Video, uh, in, uh, Amazon.co.jp. But anyway, so... Yes, I, I am personally responsible not just for the subtitles, but for the film having uh, active life on video in the United States. Like you, uh, to me, it's the greatest anti-war film ever made. It's not the main subject of the film, but, you know, it's one of the rare, rare Japanese films, it may be the only one, where they show Japanese soldiers brutally executing an American POW. Fukasaku was just brutally, brutally honest about war responsibility and taking responsibility for it. And I wanted the world to know that, you know, Japan is often blamed for its government not taking full responsibility for the war. But there are many, many films where individual filmmakers said it's time for us to tell the truth and acknowledge the truth. Towards the end of the war, Japan was literally running on fumes. Their Navy was sunk. Uh, they were sending their best and brightest off to kill themselves in kamikaze planes, and they were forcibly recruiting children um, and teenagers to work in armament factories. And Fukasaku, uh, in 1945, Fukasaku was 15, and he was working in an armament factory when it was shelled by U.S. cannon from a, from a, you know, from a, I'm not quite sure what kind of ship it was, and the armament factory was blown up, and at, he was spared, but you know, at 15, he was picking up the bodies and the body parts, and it left him 
scarred for life. And his reaction, which was actually shared by also by Oshima, the Nagisa Oshima, who was also 15 at the time, and also a very prominent photographer, post-war photographer called Tomatsu. They were all 15. And their reaction to the war was that they were fed military propaganda and believed the propaganda and believed that that Japan was going to win and that it was fighting a noble war to liberate Asia. As soon as the war ended, they found out that it was all a lie. The parents and their teachers had all been lying to them. And so they all developed an absolute distrust. Uh, and I think in some cases, kind of a hatred towards people in power and authority. That is what the, the real theme of under the flag of the rising sun is the perpetrators of the war who at the very top literally getting away with murder and the people at the bottom having to pay the price for their greed and aggression. Had he done anything at this point related to the war? It's my understanding he was hired to replace uh, Akira Kurosawa on Tora Tora Tora. Had he made any kind of war film before this period? I can't. 100% 100% recall, but I really doubt it. He really, he started out making quite entertaining films for Toei. And so I, I don't know, you know, maybe some of the, I, I feel like maybe there was a African-American GI featured in Greed in Broad Daylight. I can't remember, but he certainly didn't deal with the war directly in any of his movies before this one. And my understanding is that Kurosawa's ideas for how to direct the Japanese portion, the Japanese half of Tora 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 just didn't go over very well. And so he was fired, I think, with, within the first two weeks. And then Fukasaku was hired to take his place. And I guess at the time, he was probably paid an American Hollywood director's fee or half. But at the time, the exchange rate was 360 yen to the dollar. Whereas, you know, now it's a hundred. So whatever fee was essentially tripled for him in Japan. And that's what gave him the funds to personally produce the film. But first he bought the right to a top literary prize winning nonfiction book called Under the Flag of the Rising Sun that documented the abuses by Japan's military elite of those who served under them. What Fukasaku did and actually Shindo Kaneto, the director, is also credited as the screenwriter. I think they wrote it together. But basically, they took the non-fictional accounts of Japan's abuse of its own soldiers and spun it into, they created the character, the fictional character of the widow, and spun it into a narrative that we see in the film. As an American and not understanding the cultural aspects of, of Japanese culture in that period and in, in the transition, as you talk about in the um, commentary track on the DVD, you posit that some of these abuses by the commanding officers was due to sort of this structure of expectations of people who lived in the villages and sort of what you were supposed to do as a citizen and what you were expected and that you could be shunned if you didn't do certain things or your family would be shunned if you didn't do certain things at the front. Yes, absolutely. It was a completely military. Everything about it was run by the military. Food rationing, everything was under military control. And so if you in any way attempted to defy the military or criticize it or stand up against it, 
your family back in their villages might be starved to death, might be shunned. It was a very, very intimate control that the military had over every life in Japan. I mean, village life is different, obviously, from, you know, life in the, in the big cities, but still there's a phrase, murahachibu, which is, you know, when, when there was, there was a tradition of official shunning. If some individual in the village committed an egregious act, and that meant that the only interaction with you once you were shunned would be either to help put out a fire if your home caught fire or take care of you in case of grave illness. But otherwise, there was no interaction whatsoever. And that, that was a centuries-old tradition. So it was strictly enforced. When you talked with Fukusaku to do the subtitles and, and, and the work that you did, when you talked to him about the film, what kind of interaction or what kind of explanation did he give you as to what his his thoughts were, what he was trying to convey. I mean, it, it's I think it's rather obvious, but you know, for that time, I mean, that must have been rather rather radical vision to put before the Japanese public in say what nineteen seventy one seventy two. To directly criticize the emperor and his involvement in the war was beyond taboo. It was a miracle. I mean, it was only because Fukusaki that he could make it really, because he was. He was basically fueled by rage at the corruption that he saw all around him, and nobody could really defy him. And, you know, it says the film was distributed by Toei, but he self-produced it, and I think initially it was distributed by a small independent distribution company. When I think it won some peace prize at the Moscow Film Festival. And I said, what did you think about that? And he said, I don't give a damn about peace. He said, I'm an anarchist. And so what I care about is the relationship between the individual and the state. And that's what this film is about, right? How does the individual stand up to the state? And how do you negotiate your relationship to the state? And I think, you know, he was particularly sensitive about that because of the kind of complete control that the military had had over the Japanese population during the war. But he also pioneered many of the cinematic techniques that he used in his gangster films that he made after um, Under the Flag of the Rising Sun, including the use of archival photographs, including the use of making a color film, and then in flashbacks going into black and white. And uh, so in that sense, he, he really called it his signature film, I think, because, you know, he chose the material. He had a strong hand in adapting it, and then he directed it to express his own personal perspective on the war and on society. And for his other films that were all produced by Toei, he didn't always have that kind of freedom. I mean, they gave him a long leash, but, you know, he chose the material. And so this was his complete and total expression of who, who Fukasaku is. As you said, you know, from a visual standpoint, it's, it's almost a 50 year old film and it's still visually fresh. And in that period, it must have been such a shocker because there's things that he has in there that I think most people who look at film would go, Oh, well, you know, that kind of fast cuts or that kind of handheld blur motion. Oh, that's all post MTV technique. And it's like, no, 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 no. He was doing some amazing work in there. That was part of why I wanted more people to see the film. And I, you know, 
anybody listening to this podcast knows anybody at Amazon or Netflix. I mean, I know that there are some very odd, really obscure Japanese films that you can find on Amazon now. And um, I wish, you know, given that it's available on Amazon.co.jp, it would be so wonderful if Amazon US could pick it up. You know, we know the digital file is there. So I hope that more people can have a chance to see it. But yes, his filmmaking is astonishing. The other aspect of that, not just from the visual standpoint, but from from the way he handles violence, has always been something that really connects with with my own sensibility because I don't feel that the violence in his films are cartoony. I don't feel that it's for fun. The violence in his films are never, ever gratuitous because I think that may be the result of having to pick up your friend's body parts when you're 15 years old. It's real I'm sure he lived in fear of his own death as a teenager. And so it's nothing, there's nothing funny or fun or even exciting about it. So, you know, I know that Quentin Tarantino was extremely influenced by Fukasaki's films, but he didn't get the memo of that you shouldn't use violence to titillate or employ gratuitous violence to excite the viewers because that never ever happened in, in any of Fukasaki's films. And, what he said was, listen, I didn't care about the Yakuza. The gangsters didn't interest me. The problem is that I wanted to portray rebellion. And if you try to portray rebellion in Japanese civil society, you end at the first act where the worker rebels and gets fired and there's no second or third act. But with the Yakuza, because they're a world unto themselves, you can have a rebellious Yakuza like Battles Without Honor and Humanity. And you can go on and on and make four movies uh, on that theme because the Yakuza have their own world. But he never glamorized the Yakuza. So if you look at his Yakuza films, all of the kind of the big ceremonies that they have, whether it's a kind of a swearing in of a new brother or anything along those lines, he takes care of them in a few still shots because he was never interested in glamorizing them. But, you know, he was always critical of the gang culture. But, you know, was a brilliant filmmaker and, and, um, you know, he wanted to keep making films. I believe he made 60. So he found a genre where he could portray rebellion and still have it be popular entertainment. We talked earlier about World War II era that often Hollywood, um, I, I guess for some reason there's, there seems to be in the mind a bit more moral clarity, and I'll put that in quotes, uh, around the European conflict. Do you take it that maybe there's, that there's questions of, you know, aspects of racism or is it, or is it the atomic explosion that makes it hard for filmmakers and, and mainstream Hollywood to, to really get their hands around the Pacific theater and to, and to do great films in that, in that story and in that area? Part of the reason that the Americans found Pearl Harbor so unforgivable was that it was a quote unquote sneak attack which actually, I think if somebody, you know, if, if we did something like a sneak attack, I think it would be called, what, shock and awe? <laughs> Brilliant military strategy, but because it had been committed by country of color, shall we say, it was unimaginable and therefore unforgivable. And, you know, the atomic bombs, of course, remain incredibly taboo in this country still. I made a film uh, on the subject of Hiroshima, although I, my film wasn't my film was um, 
it was a beautiful film about Hiroshima because it was um, a film about photographs taken by a famous Japanese photographer who resurrected those who died in the bomb through photographing their clothing that they had left behind and photographing them in color as fashion. So compared to my other films, the Hiroshima film, it just there's no interest at all in it in the United States. Um, it's so it just remains taboo. My quest was to watch as many Japanese post-war films as I could that actually dealt with the war in Japanese cinema. So I'm much more versed in those films. I, I can't say that I, I don't have any kind of expectations for that, but the Pacific War to be treated in any kind of a respectful way uh, in the United States. So uh, Thin Red Line actually came as a complete shock to me, and I'm grateful to Terrence Malick for having made that film. Since you bring that up, I was wondering, are there other uh, films, Japanese films, uh, that you think, you know, if, if you're going to watch Under the Flag of the Rising Sun or you're interested in sort of the Japanese perspective on the Pacific War, what would those be? What other ones would you recommend? It's going to sound a little adjacent as an answer, but I would recommend, because I know the film is readily available, is Kobayashi's Samurai Rebellion, uh, because even though it it's about the samurai era. It, it reflects the director, Kobayashi. It stars Mifune. I think Mifune was having a fight with Kurosawa. So Mifune was available, and it's, it's Mifune who plays a loyal vassal to, uh, to a warlord, but then he's pushed to the brink because of how his son and daughter-in-law are treated by the warlord. And uh, he goes into, well, samurai rebellion. And it it reflects the director's regret for not having been able to defy Japan's military when he was a officer. He was a little bit older than Fukasaki, so he was drafted to be an officer in Manchuria. And all his post-war films reflect, I mean, that is, all his films reflect the regret. The Human Condition, I think, is a three-part epic film that he directed. Um, so... It, 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 it doesn't depict the war, but it depicts his regret for not having been able to defy the Japan's military. It's a brilliant, brilliant film. Samurai Rebellion, unbelievably unforgettable. It's often that people will um, take one war or one thing and, and couch it in another, <laughs> you know, another era in order to be able to uh, to make it and, you know, slip it past the censors or whoever would go, no, 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 you can't, you can't talk directly about that, but we'll, yes. we'll put it in a different time period. Exactly. Is there anything you want to add about, you know, Fukuzaku, um, thinking about him as a filmmaker and, and sort of what, what you see his, his value, his legacy, uh, today? I happened to be in Japan when he passed away. And so I was able to attend his funeral. I was the only gaijin there, the only foreigner. Of course, I stuck out like a sore thumb. There were 4,000 people there. He was an incredibly beloved film director and, I know that, you know, Kurosawa is the more famous of the post-war filmmakers, but honestly, Fukasaku was the most beloved. I mean, I remember being in a bar once where he personally took the hand of a screenwriter and a director who were feuding with each other over a script and said, okay, let's put this to bed. It's enough. Let, let it go. We're going to figure out a solution. And he really was the only person who commanded that kind of respect in the filmmaking community who could pull something like that off. And I remember 
I was invited into the kind of the inner sanctum of the temple where his coffin was laid out with beautiful flowers and everything. And it sounded like I was in a funeral in Morocco. The keening and the wailing and the sobbing and the crying, uh, that is not a typical Japanese funeral. Afterwards, I, I asked um, one of my friends who's a director, I said, what was that about? And he said, that's, that's how much people loved Fukasaku. They couldn't believe that he was gone. He had cancer and he refused. He said, I, I, I don't want to have that kind of surgery. And so he marched peacefully into his death and bravely into his death. And he, uh, very, a uh, death befitting his life. Very, very brave, uh, incredibly charismatic, incredibly cool cat. What can I say? I can't really speak to his lingering legacy, but what I will say is I had one uh, quote-unquote date with him. I got to, we, he took me to a yakitori shop, and it was just me and him. Usually it was always surrounded. We were always surrounded by all kinds of other people. It was a group setting, but in this situation, he said, I think he was thanking me for the subtitles uh, because, the you know, the retrospective in Rotterdam was really a huge success, and uh, you know, my subtitles uh, for his films, the one that I, the ones that I did subtitle, very accurately reflect his spirit, um, because that's the approach that I always took. I don't really subtitle much anymore, but, um, so we, we were having dinner and I said, so, um, what do you think of the Seven Samurai? And he said, Seven Samurai? He said, I care about the bandits. How did the, what happened to the bandits? What about their backstory? That's what I care about. <laughs> So, I mean, I think to me that's the, the best anecdote I have about about Sukasaku is that he always and, and and actually it's worth rewatching under the flag of the rising sun just to watch the the act structure because you know he starts out in Act One introducing all of the subsidiary characters I mean except for the for the widow in their worst light and and it just gets worse and worse and they lie and they tell lies to absolve themselves of guilt. And collusion, and then the third act, invariably, for most of them, he comes in and just gracefully, you know, rescues them and said, this person had this situation, this person had this going on. I mean, of course, you know, the ultimate villain of the colonel that got away with murder and then goes on to post-war success is not rescued in that way. But all the other characters, he always shows this tremendous third act empathy towards. And I remember... When the movie Crash won the Academy Award, I don't know how many years ago it was, I thought, wow, you know, in Crash, the director kicks all of his characters down the stairs in the third act. What a horrible, graceless, if you hate human beings that much, why do you make movies? You know, Kasaku ultimately loved human beings and was there to lift them up, you know, in grace and dignity. I'm so honored to have met him and been able to work with him. Yeah. And like you said, the, the, the conversation that you had about, um, his presence and, and who he was with the, uh, the, the people in the industry and the people that knew him personally from an audience standpoint. I mean, you don't get to hang around and make 60 movies if, if you didn't connect with an audience from an audience standpoint. Did he, did he find similar love that he was, you know, he was a notable director that people go, Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing his new work and things like that in that era. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. His fans were legion. And I know that there was still a lot of student demonstrations going on when he made the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. And at the time, there were 
all night cinemas. And so I used to hear stories from people who had, who would go watch his movies in an all night theater and then head straight out filled with rage to a student demonstration. <laughs> so he was definitely beloved by several generations of moviegoers. As for yourself, uh, we did talk a little bit about, you know, you've been doing documentary work and, and I want to thank you for years ago selling me a copy of Ampo, which I have next to my copies of my Fukuzaku films. What is uh, some of the work that you're doing now and where can people uh, keep in touch with you to find out more about what you're doing? Well, my latest film is called Edo Avant-Garde. Edo is spelled E-D-O and you can watch the trailer at Edo Avant-Garde, A-V-A-N-T-G-A-R-D-E dot com. It's a film that has nothing to do at all with World War II. It's about how Japanese artists of the Edo era uh, invented modern art, and the Edo era is um, from 1613 to 1858. Um, Japan was actually, um, it was ruled by the shogun for 250 years, but it was both entirely isolated from the West, and um, there was peace for 250 years because the shogun manipulated the um, daimyo, or the, or the, I mean, we call them warlords. They were they they ran their fiefdoms. They each had a castle, and but he was so the shogun was so uh, administration was so adept at manipulating them that um, peace was maintained for 250 years, and so there was an explosion of culture, and the merchant class especially became patrons of art and vied with each other to if the who could um, you know commission a, a gigantic folding screen that would outdo their neighbors in originality and striking visual comp, you know, composition. And so they, in fact, invented all of the major tenets of modern art from abstraction to surrealism to uh, actually we learned filming the illusion of 3D. We were able to film dozens of these incredible folding screens, um, many of which now belong to U.S. museums, because after Japan opened again to the West, many collectors traveled to Japan, and at the time, the work was available for reasonable prices, and so they're beautifully preserved in museum collections and some private collections, and um, so we were able to film these incredible 300-year-old folding screens, much of it with gold leaf gold never tarnishes so it comes back to life in natural light and candlelight and so we were able to film them uh, and also I was able to um, the cinematographer uh, Japan's Academy Award cinematographer that Quentin Tarantino wanted for Kill Bill but Kasamatsu is his name um, Kasamatsu turned him down agreed to film with me and so I have a Japan's uh, Academy Award winning cinematographer using dolly tracks to film these incredible folding screens and all of them are depict nature. So it's really about how their reverence for nature inspired them to invent uh, and pioneer the tenets of modern art. If anybody's interested, I hope you'll watch the trailer and order a DVD at edoavantgarde.com. Oh, I'm definitely interested. So I'm going to go do that right now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so cool. great. It's a, it's a really beautiful film. Actually, there were premieres for the film for Edouard Avant-Garde scheduled in New York and L.A., and it all got pushed and postponed by COVID. But the Harvard Art Museums just hosted a online streaming of it where 2,500 people watched it and 600 people showed up for the Zoom Q&A. So 
people who love art really love the film. And I have to say that it's really the style of the filmmaking really is a distillation of everything that I learned from all the wonderful Japanese filmmakers, including Tsukasaku, who I learned so much from subtitling their film. So it's a very quiet, thoughtful, meditative film. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Robert. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest of honor is from the Empire of Japan. How would you feel if America and Japan were to enter war? The United States is the last country in the world Japan should fight. この実家で私は自分の兵が待つ認知へと向かう。国のため忠義を尽くし、この命を捧げようと決意している。おめでとうございます。召集令状です。ありがとうございます。お国のため精一杯ご奉公してまいります。もはやこの島孤立したも当然
because they almost have to be watched together to get the full quote message or whatever you want to call what Clint Eastwood was going for. I mean, I thought it was a clever idea to do this two-parter thing, but I thought it would have been even more clever. Clint Eastwood steps up and says, I'm going to make this American film about an American point of view. Can I get a Japanese person to step up and do the Japanese counterpoint? Can we work together on two films that are told from either point of view, maybe even have a couple crossover scenes, but really watching flags of our fathers. I was just like, okay, so this is the story of the picture of the raising the flag on Iwo Jima. Okay. And just all of the fallout from that. And he has a very similar time structure that he's doing in both of these things. We're flashing back like crazy. We flashback within flashbacks, by the way. It's so good. I love double flashbacks. It's the best. I never want to hear the word Corman again after watching this. I don't even want to see Harvey Corman after watching Flashback oh, Fathers. Roger, okay. I suggested these two, and this is my fault. I, oh. I totally think that you did a good thing. Whether or not I liked them, these movies deserve to be talked about with this movie. I'm not sure what other movie you could talk about these movies with other than each other. Because the point that I made was trying to find good film or decent film about the Pacific conflict. Now, the only two other movies, one of which you mentioned already, Tora, 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 which I have not seen. It used to be on TV all the time. I remember it used to be on like Channel 50 all the time when we were growing up here in Detroit. We watched that in grade school. And there was a point in... <laughs> In the film where, like, hey, America's being attacked, you know, Pearl Harbor's being attacked, and all these guys are, like, sleeping through it, right, because it's Sunday morning. This guy gets out of his bunk, and he's in his underwear. So us as grade schoolers, we laughed at that. That did not make Mr. Menifee happy at all. He had to stop the movie and yell at us about how inappropriate we were being before he would start the movie back up. This is the morning of Pearl Harbor, you dumb children. (laughs) How (laughs) dare you 10-year-olds not get this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, I was trying to find a good Pacific War film to watch. And it had been since, I don't think I watched it on video. I know I saw them in the theater. I saw both of them. And I was really impressed, like, with Letters from Iwo Jima. As a matter of fact, I still am. I still think Letters from Iwo Jima is, is the better of the two for me. Agreed. And a lot of that has to do with Ken Watanabe. I mean amazing in the role there but the thing with with these films is that there's there's good ideas in there but they're not stretched enough i feel like like i think with flags of our fathers you could have cut down on a lot of the battle scenes and made it more about this question of propaganda because that's really what it's about at the same time it was interesting to me because i think it was the first film i'd ever seen related to ira hayes and ira hayes being a johnny cash fan there's a song ballad of ira hayes that is about him and I thought, wow, you know, the, here's here's an opportunity to have a native character and, and to understand that aspect. For me, I would love to see someone just do a biopic on or documentary on Ira Hayes. I, I find her just to be a very tragic person. I mean, not only because, um, I mean, they kind of allude to it in the film, but they can't go into it too much. I mean, obviously, he was he was a native. He probably would have been sent to boarding school. So there's that scene where someone's trying to talk to him, you know, in a quote unquote native language. And he's like, I don't know. You know, and and there's all of this kind of racism that he's up against, you know, where people are trying to be funny. Like, <laughs> I bet you it's getting up with your tomahawk there. Hey, chief, you know, right. They literally call him chief in every scene he's in. And boy, when you call a Native American actor that it sure doesn't feel good other than calling white people. 
it's understanding that period. I mean, that's my, as I said, my grandfather was a, a veteran of the Pacific theater. He called black people colored people until the day he died. It was just what he did. In terms of these films, I mean, do you want to talk about them separately or do you want to talk about them together? I mean, what, what is it that you like? What is it that you didn't like in terms of um, these? Well, let's talk about Flags of Our Fathers. And I did like the Ira Hayes character. I like this whole question of who is actually in the photo. Why is that important? People that were mistaken to be in the photo. The idea of, you know, continue with the myth. You know, even if we find out the truth later on, we're just going to continue with the myth. And that's basically the American way, right? Just good stories sell, man. I did find that interesting. I was almost distracted by the flashbacks to war, though I understood like this is showing their mental health and their point of view and everything. But I just thought it was a little much. They just went back to it a lot. That one felt like the faster moving of the two. Not that either of them felt that fast, but then Letters to Iwo Jima just felt so slow. I ended up watching it in three shifts just because I just kept saying, is this over yet? I've, I've got things to do. It just felt really drawn out. It is two hours, 20 minutes. So it is, I mean, I think they both are two hours, 20 minutes, but uh, I, yeah. part of the reason why Letters from Iwo Jima feels longer is because it's in the bunkers. It's like they're in the they're in the hills and in the mountains getting shelled and like waiting to do things. So there's a lot of this kind of how long we got to sit here, you know, and then holy shit, everyone's dead. What do we do now? You can almost anticipate in the scenes when there's about to be an explosion in Letters from Iwo Jima because the, the, the scene like slows down just enough and then there's an explosion. And it's just like, OK, now we're back into the war stuff again, as opposed to the introspective character stuff. Flags of Our Fathers is here's the war, here's the present, but Letters from Iwo Jima is here's the present, which is the war, and here's the past. Letters from Iwo Jima does have the present, too, because the framing device that the film is told through is excavated letters from Iwo Jima, which in and of itself, I like that shot at the end, and I think that it's an effective shot, but again, I don't know how I feel about that framing device. It feels a little wonky it's saving private ryan is what it is it's it's the man in normandy beat who's like uh tell me i'm a good man and you know it's it's the way to get people in and out of the of the story i mean i agree with you they they could have just lopped that off entirely yeah doesn't add much not really you know obviously i watched them back to back like i'm sure well mike watching in three parts maybe not so much but i watched them back to back i'm with you 100 rob i think letters from Iwo Jima is the better film because while it does feel like the longer film, it feels like the film that actually takes its time to give you a reason to feel for the characters. In Flags of Our Fathers, the Ira Hayes story, I think, is a story that everybody in our country should know for the, a lot of the reasons of the way our country exploits veterans and quote unquote war heroes. And I think his story is a perfect example of that. But the bigger issue is. Flags of Our Fathers, as much as it tries to have a statement about the war, it, it can't. It ultimately falls flat because Clint Eastwood doesn't go far enough, I don't think, in either movie. He draws it back right at the end as opposed to in Under the Flag of the Rising Sun going, no, you guys don't understand. We're all pawns in their game and they don't give a shit how we feel at the end of the day if three million people die. Okay. Well, that's the cost of war. 
And neither of the Clint Eastwood films go that far because that's an American thing. We just can't confront this. We refuse to. If we confronted it, I don't think we'd be going to war as much as we do. You have to confront this to fully appreciate how fucked up this is. And Clint Eastwood just goes, it's bad. Okay, bye. You can't stop there. You gotta, if you're going to take this journey, take it to the end. Don't halfway. As Linda talks about uh, in the interview, she talks about how for Fukuzaku, the film for him under the flag of the rising sun was really about the individual versus the state. And that's the state saying, you're going to go do this. And this is what the state's going to do. In the Eastwood films, the state is still the state. The state's still going to send you to war. The only one that gives you an opportunity to have some sense of humanity between the soldiers on the individual level, but doesn't question the war itself. No. (laughs) Is Letters from Iwo Jima. And it only, and, and I didn't think about this until I started to read some of the reviews, is that there were some reviewers that said, oh, it appears that the Japanese who are the most civil are the ones who spend time in the West. Yes, the two characters, the Americanized ones. Ooh, it's real convenient, Clint Eastwood. And then one of the Americanized ones is the one reading the letter that dissuades all the guys from fighting momentarily. Like, what the fuck is even the point of this? That's not the point here. The point of these two movies is for us to understand the common ground, not point out the common ground to the characters in the movie. It's for us as the audience to understand the common ground, not for the characters to have this weird momentary loss of nationalist pride. It's like every war that America fights has to be justified in some way. Mm -hmm. People just really hate when we say, yeah, we went over there to get the oil. Yeah, no, no, no. We were bringing democracy to the Iraqi people. And it's like, "Mm, no, we just wanted the oil. Democracy barely works here. Why do we think it's going to work anywhere else if we're the ones imposing it? I don't understand. Our country's democracy is is clearly tenuous at best. Here's the thing that's funny that you say that. Well, we're only there for the oil. I'll give you, I'll give you, for instance, from my own family. I was talking to my uncle and my uncle's in his late seventies now and lives in England. In the early sixties, he was British commando. Royal Navy. So basically the equivalent of Navy SEALs in the U.S. And one of his first incursions with a small group, you know, maybe a dozen guys, was into Yemen. And he goes, we had to keep the oil flowing. And our job was to go over and either make deals with the warlords over there, these sheikhs who were living in little tents in the middle of the desert, and make deals with them, or just to get rid of them. And he goes, and they wanted to be paid in gold sovereigns. So he goes, we had bags of gold coins, and we went in there and said, what's it going to take? Here's your choice. And it was really just that simple. And if you want to get into more stuff about war and stuff like that, I would advise, you know, uh, there, there's a great book. It, it was a lecture that he used to give was uh, Smedley Butler, who was, as far as I know, the only uh, American soldier who won two medals of honor. And in the 1930s was part of allegedly... Uh, approached as part of the business plot against FDR. But anyway, he wrote a book called War is a Racket, in which he explains his time in the military and says, basically, I was just used as hired muscle uh, for corporations to make money. That's all I did. That's all I did. And he explains it and kind of lays it out. But the, uh, the, the point that I would like to also make about these movies is I remember there was a, a quote, and I'm going to massacre it because I'm bad at remembering exact quotes, but it was Francois Truffaut who said something akin of that you could never really make an effective anti-war war film because most people make war look too glamorous. 
And I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, are there any films? Because obviously we all agree that the way Fukusaka did Under the Flag of the Rising Sun, he's not glamorizing it in the least. There's no real kind of like fighting scenes of both sides lined up and shooting at each other and things like that. There's there's no battlefield heroics in that way in that movie. Um, so obviously I think that maybe that film probably gets a little asterisk next to it, next to it. And if our, our good friend and uh, fellow birthday man to me, uh, Francois Truffaut, where it was alive and got to see the Fukuzaku film, maybe he would have said, okay, well, there's at least one that <laughs> doesn't glamorize it. But are there any anti-war films that you can think of that uh, doesn't glamorize it in that way? Every movie almost has to. I mean, shit, look at something, and Mike, you'll appreciate this. Look at how perv- like how pervasive war is in our culture, that we took a, a source material like The Hobbit and added more to it. We can't even get out of our own way with adapting fictionalized stuff, because we want to be entertained by war. I can't even think of, off the top of my head, an American anti-war film. And that's probably because I haven't seen it. I'm not saying there aren't any. I'll give you one that I think probably is. It does fit into the Pacific films of, you know, World War II about the Pacific, but I don't necessarily even consider it that. And that's the Thin Red Line, the Malik film. It is much more a meditation on war and violence and all of that. It just happens to be set in the Battle of Guadalcanal. That's all. World War II films, there are very few that I've seen other than, you know, we talked last week about Kelly's Heroes, and that's way post-World War II and kind of more like fighting the Vietnam War through the structure of World War II. I grew up much more in the Cold War era, so things like war games would be the closest I get to an anti-war film. (laughs) So I don't know if that even counts. You know, it was much more the looming threat of stuff as opposed to, I like how you said earlier, like, yeah, we all know that fighting Nazis is a good thing. And it's like, do we all know that right now? Right right now in in the US? Do we actually all know that? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some maybe some people think they're they're cute and cuddly. Yeah. But the uh There's the good only, people on both sides. Both sides, yeah. You know, yeah. the the only other one that I can think of, uh and, and we did it on the show, and it's only the first one because it gets ridiculous past that. And we talked about that if you wanna go listen to that episode, but is uh first blood. In that I think First Blood really talks about the impact on Vietnam veterans. You know, that monologue that Stallone has that fucking tears my heart out. The ending, obviously, and go go listen to that episode. And we talk about the ending with David Morrell, the guy who wrote the book. And then obviously um, our our friend Zachary Oberzan, who decided to undertake a a faithful adaptation in his apartment for a hundred bucks. And it's the most amazing little films you'll ever see. That's the only other one that I can really think of off the top of my head. I'm, I'm often trying to think about uh, anti-war war films that are set within the war itself. It's been years since I've seen MASH. I know people point to that one as possibly critiquing. I mean, A Midnight Clear was a really good kind of statement about, you know, that people aren't that awful, you know, especially when it comes to grunts, you know, just like the, the people in the trenches, the people who are on the front, not the people that are making the decisions or Manning the the camps, those kind of things. I thought A Midnight Clear was a really good war film, and I put that in quotes. Almost every war film may have parts of an anti-war film, because every fucking war movie toes the goddamn line, right? Where it's like, look at how these characters have changed, and it's like, isn't that terrible? And it's like, are you trying to be anti-war here, or are you just trying to tell us that war is hell? Because I can't tell. Because one... This feels like a very definitive statement. The other thing just feels like a storytelling 
convention that you're just leaning on. I have the guy from Kansas who's now here on the, you know, in the jungles of Vietnam and he has changed and he comes back and, you know, now he's a shell of his former self. Isn't that terrible? It's like, yeah, it is. But that conclusion I'm coming to, you didn't earn that. Full Metal Jacket? Platoon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they all have that same. It's there. It's just, it's not as definitive as Under the Flag of the Rising Sun. That's for sure. The big red one is one that comes to mind as well. War. It's fantastic. I just try to stay away from war movies. They're just not a a subgenre of film that interests me. I would much rather watch a documentary about it or read a book. I'd rather watch Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War than watch, I don't know, Gettysburg or any, you know, any number of Civil War films. I'd rather just read about it. Like, I don't need it to be fictionalized or dramatized. It's pretty fucking dramatic reading and listening to firsthand accounts. Uh, Gloria, we came to the farm. It was a cold day at Antietam. Like, that shit's interesting. You don't have to dramatize that. It's pretty dramatic. You don't need to do much. I like to put on my gray uniform and actually partake in reenactments, you know? Hey, you know what? Cool. As long as that doesn't bleed outside of that, you can go reenact whatever the fuck you want. Don't fly the Confederate flag on your car afterwards. Speaking of the Ken Burns documentary, in the first days of the um, COVID uh, lockdown uh, here in Michigan, uh, my wife and I started watching uh, the Civil War, and I started to develop a pretty bad Shelby Foote imitation, who is like the lead historian, whose voice sounds, his voice just sounds like pure, pure butter. It's just amazing. In the Army of Northern Virginia. So um, so the wife would, you know, get off the couch, go get something, and I'd be like, darling, could you do me a favor and go <laughs> get that for me? Thank you, my darling. This is- in your trek to the refrigerator, please exactly. watch out for union sympathizers. She's going to reconnoiter. Shelby Foote, by the way, has, I believe it's three books on the Civil War, or is it four? And each one on Audible is at least 30 hours. So if that's a thing you're into, which I got through the first one, it's a lot. As long as he reads it, so you're good. If he doesn't, that's a shame. If he does, good on them. It's either that or we got to get someone like they got Anthony Hopkins to do the Lawrence Olivier bit in uh, Spartacus to do it. You know, someone who can do it dead on, you know, Shelby Foot. Sounds like you're calling, Rob. <laughs> oh, no, not so much. Picking out a genre or watching films in that way. I, I think the only reason, like I said, that that I was interested in sort of this part of World War Two was I was named after my grandfather and I knew that my grandfather was in the war and he was wounded. And he didn't really like to talk about it. He did talk about certain aspects. So, for example, uh, one of the things that you see in um, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima is that when the, the guys surrendered, my grandfather told me a story that, you know, when they were moving from island to island, they were going rather quickly, uh, especially towards the NM45. He said that they had prisoners at one point, And one night, the CO came to them and said, uh, I'll be right back. And they all disappeared. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, what do you think happened? He goes, he goes, I think he marched him off a cliff is what I think he did. I think he took, you know, these dozens of uh, POWs that we had. And when you look at sort of the numbers, if, if you were captured and you were a German in Europe, you were more likely to be 
saved and and be able to go to a POW camp and and survive to the end of the war than you were if you were a Japanese soldier. And I think there's kind of several reasons for this. One is obviously, as we talked about earlier, Germans look like us. They have similar last names, things like that. I think the other aspect of it, too, is that uh, it was one big landmass as opposed to it being like, we got to go from island, 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 island. And that kind of supply line stuff, especially towards the end. And that's one of the things that's in both in, in all of these films that's really discussed was the lack of materials. It, things got really desperate on both sides uh, in, in some of these places. But one of the things that my grandfather always said to me is he goes, you know, sometimes we run low on bullets, but we never run low on cigarettes. He goes, somehow those fucking cigarettes kept getting to the goddamn front. So I think that might be part of the reason why, I was always interested in this, and then my father was in Vietnam, and he was part of some veterans groups. So I always had an interest in understanding who these people were, how they ended up going there in the first place, if they were drafted, if they signed up, and then what that effect was on them. Because my dad, being a member of uh, Vietnam veterans organizations, they did push for you know PTSD to be taken seriously and for people to uh, get benefits for that and to help also with um, Agent Orange and, and, and other uh, benefits for veterans. So I've always had a very humanist uh, approach when it comes to understanding that while I am personally against war, I, I do have nothing but sympathy and believe that if you are drafted or you sign up and you go and are sent, that you deserve to receive the very best care. It's, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's the very least that this country can do if um, if they're asking you to go and put your life on the line in that way. Service means citizenship. Yes and no. So they touch on it in Flags of Our Fathers. I believe uh, Tom McCarthy's character at one point even says, like, my dad never talked about this. He outright refused. And hearing you say that as someone who has experienced it is just as heartbreaking as hearing it in the movie. Because you know, be it a family member, be it a character in a film, that what they have gone through, even if they told you about it, they could never make you understand and again, that's where the Clint Eastwood films both kind of fail is because they, they get up to the glass and they don't bust through it. They don't make that cohesive statement between both films about war. They kind of walk around it. Like you said, Rob, it ultimately, they don't really question the war in these two movies. The way our country treats veterans, regardless of why you're there, is deplorable. And I don't understand it. And I never will. It's weird to me. Because you mentioned your justification for why you were interested in these kinds of things. I was interested because I always felt in academia when I was in school, they always glossed over it. And my question was, why the fuck are you glossing over it? Oh, you're glossing over it because it's a fucking atrocity and you don't want to teach children about it. Weird. Maybe you fucking should. Because if you don't teach us about it, how will we know not to do it again? Oh, we don't care about not doing it again. Okay, got it. Moving on. It's it's fucking pathetic. And I mean, in the American academic system, when you're taught this country's history, war is just a page one or two. The Vietnam War is condensed down into one page. Get the fuck out of here. But you have an entire chapter about the founding of this country and everything else, but we refuse to acknowledge the colonialist slash imperialist bullshit we've imposed upon so many countries around the world. It's like, come on, guys. This doesn't help our society move forward. It just has people going out and learning about these things on their own and being, you know, horrified by it when you learn about it on your own. That's part of the the issue is is a lack of willingness to accept nuance in that 
I'm old enough to remember that, you know, in the run up to the first Gulf War and then the second one after September 11th, it was like, if you question anything, then, you know, why do you hate the troops? No, don't hate the troops. I've got nothing but but love and support for those people because I I was recruited to be one <laughs> when I was in high school. I, I was offered officer's school and, and all of this um, because they gave us the military test as training for taking standardized tests like the ACT and the SAT at my high school. I, I couldn't do it after I saw, you know, the way that Vietnam veterans were treated. And I actually told the recruiter that I go, you need to stop calling me. And he's like, why? And I go, this is why. And I go, you're never going to change my opinion after what I've seen and what I understand. So and why would I go just to be treated like garbage when I got back and just to have PTSD or have lost limbs or have lost God knows what? But no, let me sign up, please. You're right. Much better to throw myself on the pyre for you. And I understand it that for some, it is a way out. I understand that for people who are raised like I was working poor, it is a way out of that neighborhood. It is a way out of that factory. It is a way um, to have a career. But it is it is sad that we don't, you know, do our best to offer people a, a multitude of op- opportunities as opposed to saying, oh, well, here you go, poor kids. <laughs> no, here's 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 your here's your path out. And that still kind of uh, affects me. So there you go. That's why I love really good war film, because it's not really about the war. It's about the psychology of the individual and about how people work together. Uh, in that way, in in a lot of ways, I guess it sits on the shelf next to George Romero zombie movies because it's not really about the zombies. It's really about the people under pressure. The good ones should be. And you're right, Chris. I mean, when it comes to the Pacific Theater, it's like Pearl Harbor happens December 7th, 1941. And then we bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then we win. in August of 45. And it's like, wait, what what happened in those intervening years? <laughs> It's like a lot of shit happened. A lot of shit went down and we don't really talk about that too much. And even just doing like a real cursory Google of uh war set in the Pacific or movie set in the Pacific war, barely anything compared to war uh, movies that were set in the European theater. And it's just amazing how different they are. I wonder if it's also like a guilt, like a tacit admitting it without saying it admission of guilt how bad this country feels about what we did in the Pacific theater. It kind of feels like that too. I mean, look, your opinions on the use of nuclear weapons is going to differ from person to person. I'm sure it'll differ between the three of us in some form or fashion, but you know, the greatest uh, way to not address something is to just literally never talk about it. And I think a similar to this is decent films about slavery. Because I remember like when 12 Years a Slave came out and stuff like that, it was like, oh, do we really have to make movies about slavery? And it's like, yeah, it would be nice to actually have that conversation in that venue. I do think that there's a level of guilt and and how do you deal with the fact that you unleashed the most destructive force <laughs> humanity's ever created on a people? Not just once. A couple days two apart. Two fucking times. I mean, that's the brutality of all of this. It's this is like I didn't tell you this, Mike, and I probably shouldn't tell you this. I didn't have the most time this week. So I watched everything today and I am emotionally drained completely. I mean, I got to the end of Under the Flag of the Rising Sun and I was like, I can't I have to watch anything else because this is just it's it drains you. It, it The reason people don't just sit and watch war movies all the time is what you said, Rob. It's not about war. At least the good ones aren't. They're just not. 
All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. Assault on Precinct 13. It's war in the streets. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parents. That's right. We'll be back next week with the first of a two-part discussion about John Carpenter, beginning with an episode on Assault on Precinct 13. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Rob and Chris. So, Chris, what is happening with you, sir? Just uh, movies. Talking about movies over the Culture Cast. That's where you can find me. Uh, Mike shows up once a month. And, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Mike and I do a podcast together about Barney Miller as well and about Twilight Zone 1985. So if those are things you're into, you can find all that information on my Twitter at Christmas Claus. And that's where I post everything that I work on. What is your theme for April? Uh, my cinematic blind spots, which funny story. I've never seen Saving Private Ryan and I'm watching it later this month. Good luck with oh, that. Oh, yeah. Good, huh? <laughs> telling me I'm going to enjoy it a lot and that it's totally going to show me how bad war is. It's basically two movies. There's like the first 20 minutes or so. That's the invasion part. Yeah. One of the most harrowing things I've ever seen. I wish that you could see that in a theater because the surround sound, you feel like you're there in the battle. It is really fucked up. You're not the first person I've heard say that either. That's like the everything I've ever heard about that movie is the first 20 minutes in theaters were so brutal. So I, I watched people leave. I watched people aghast. I watched people crying and throwing up. Like, I've heard that so many times now that I'm worried when I watch it. I am. Because, like, I, I look, I'm an emotional dude. I just am. Like, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to take it very well. If everybody else didn't take it very well either. And then you go from that, and then you just, like, fall off a cliff. And it's just, like, it becomes the standard war movie that we've been talking about after that. It's just like, okay, I guess we got to see Matt Damon again. I'm very curious to hear your take on it. Rob, do you like it? I like that 20 minutes. I have other problems with it, but the, the the bigger problem I have with that film and you'll have to look at the timelines to see if I would, if I'm right in this assertion is that Malik had been retired and made a movie in like what, 20 years and Spielberg was like, oh, he's doing a Pacific War film. I have to do a European theater war film right now to beat him. And through <laughs> huh. Saving Private Ryan into production to beat out the Thin Red Line is what I heard. It was a competition thing as opposed to like, oh, I've been dying to do this World War II film. Although World War II has always been in the background of Spielberg since the very beginning because of his own interest with his own father. Oh, yeah. Well, in 1941... Speaking of of Japanese theater films, <laughs> and to be fair, Spielberg also kind of had after you know before Private, Saving Private Ryan had already made his war movie, right? He made Schindler's List. I mean, Spielberg could never make anything else after Schindler's List, and he still would have made everything before that and Schindler's List. And that's one. Of, it's you know I've I've never seen I've never seen Schindler's List all the way through because again it's another movie I've tried to avoid. Because I'm sure it would kick me in the teeth and say and tell me to say thank you while I'm watching it. So, you know, I've avoided Saving Private Ryan as much as I've avoided uh, Schindler's List. Should I just watch him as a double feature probably then? Yeah. Yeah. Schindler's List is kind of the sequel. So it's good. 
Yeah, it's like Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan. There you go. Another double feature. I know some people give Schindler's List a lot of shit. I mean, I think I remember what Tyr Gilliam just talking about how commercial it was and all this. And I'm just like, yeah, fuck off. I think that it's a great movie. And yeah, it's a complete gut punch. I mean, I've seen it twice and I really shouldn't have watched it the second time because I couldn't stop crying. And also, is a movie about the Holocaust not supposed to be a gut punch? I'd be more worried if it wasn't. Just slightly worried. Actually, I'd be completely worried if someone said, I like this Holocaust movie. I'd be like, what? There's good people on both sides. And Rob, what is going on in your world, sir? Well, I am uh, continuing to do the education. I've gone back to uh, finish off my um, undergrad degree because I'm one of these uh, self-educated fools to a certain extent and um, working towards figuring out what I want to do postgraduate. So that's what I've been doing, working on the house, writing some stuff. Maybe I'll hear in the next few weeks, maybe even by the time this uh, shows up, that I may have a publisher for the film threat book. Then again, maybe I won't, because I've been dealing with that thing for several years as well. Although I will say, for those who are fans of Mr. Chris Gore and film threat, that the documentary that's being put together on that, which I'm connected to uh, through the book project to a certain extent, is coming together and it looks really good. So I've seen uh, several different cuts of it and I'm sure it'll get even better. So if you're a, uh, a fan of film threat and all that, I mean, you should definitely uh, look forward to that. Outside of that, enjoying the high life here in the the greatest city in the world, Hamtramck, Michigan. In Detroit. It's an encapsulated. Yeah. That's right. I'm surrounded on all sides. All sides. But there's good people on all sides. All sides. There is here. That's true. That is true. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth. Not Japan, not America, not anybody else, but the Projection Booth. Take over the world.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.